It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube. Quite simply, go to YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggery poke, which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there. And please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus, for an exclusive experience, visit Royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter. Now, this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on Zoom, where if you are in the audience, you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests. So join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the US, in the UK and globally. Subscribe and sign up today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Roy Brown, and I'm back in sunny, well, it's rather nippy, sunny but nippy Birmingham. Uh, now, today, we're, we're going to take a deep dive into the latest political currents that are shaping the United Kingdom. In today's episode, we're focusing on a topic that's been at the forefront of British politics, the controversial Rwanda bill and its implications for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Conservative Party. We'll explore the internal rebellion within Tory party as the right-wing caucus has challenged Sunak's leadership over this divisive bill, which was designed to address legal concerns raised by the Supreme Court. The bill's journey through Parliament has been anything but smooth, with Sunak struggling to secure full support from his party. Now, to join us on this week's show, drumroll, fanfare, back we have Mick Wright, one of the founding pundits of this podcast. Mick, how the devil are we? I'm very well, Robert. How are you? You know what? Always happy to see you, sir. And ah, we have my cousin from from another auntie. We have Leah Brown. How the devil are you, Leah? I'm so well. Thank you for asking. 
Let's cross to France 24's Benedict Pavio, who's standing by for us in London. Just tell us what happened in, in Parliament this evening. I mean, a pretty close margin of 44 votes. I mean, things could have gone rather differently, couldn't they? We thought it would be close. Four years ago today, the Conservatives were in a very different position. Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister, won an election, an 80-seat majority. The working majority of the Conservatives now in their 13th year uh, in government and successive Prime Ministers is about 56. So 44, given the high drama, the rumours, the speculation, the unprecedented charm offensive of the Prime Minister himself, very early this morning, uh, phone calls, meetings, up to the last minute in the vote, there was a large number of abstentions. But uh, at the end of the day, Rishi Sunak's government did win through. The last time that this happened, just to put it in context, was in 1986. What is clearly a relief for Rishi Sunak is the fact that he has won this. But the reality is that it looks like a delayed battle to the new year because what will be the price of these factions, fighting factions within and particularly the right wing of the Conservative Party, what will be the price that they exact from the Prime Minister to say that they will vote for this in the later stages of this Rwanda bill? That is the big, big question and the unknown. Mick, I'm going to come straight to you. Without going mm-hmm. into the utter nitty-gritty, what exactly happened this week in British politics, which is seeing the Prime Minister scurrying to make sure that he actually had the support of his backbenchers. It was the second reading of the Rwanda bill. The funny thing about readings of bills in Parliament is the first reading is just the reading out of the name of the bill in Parliament. So it's just important to know that because the second reading really is the first proper reading of a bill. And the various groups in the Tory party were essentially fighting to either have it just be medium cruel or super cruel as a bill, basically. And they are comparing themselves to mafia families, the five families, various different groups, the new conservatives, the ERG, the whatever, the real conservatives, I don't know, continuity conservatives. So that's what happened. There was a lot of talk that they were going to vote, rebel on the bill so that it wouldn't have passed. I never thought that was likely to happen. It would have required quite a lot of people. And that didn't happen, but there were abstentions, which shows how divided they are as a party. And it's clear that Rishi Sunak in his bacon sandwich summit with some of the hardliners on the morning before the vote has made concessions or promises to them. And really what he's done is he's just kicked the Christmas pudding up the road. Because off in January, the next time this bill comes around, that you cannot hold this together because you've got the hardliners who want insane stuff. You've got the Lee Andersons, the 30 P. Lees of this world, saying we should just ignore international law, which, by the way, we can't for loads of reasons. You start doing that and there's loads of stuff that's interrelated. You can't just ignore international law. Other things fall apart then, so that's not going to happen. And then, of course, you've got the more moderate Tories who want the cruelty but just not as much cruelty. I think it's also really important to say one of the bad things about the reporting on this that you'll get from more traditional political correspondents is they constantly refer to this notion of the moderate Tories. That there's no such thing as a moderate Tory in in the particularly in the current Tory party. And when it comes to this bill, they all are for sending people to Rwanda. It's just some of them want to do it super illegally, and some don't. 
Like, they're all bastards. It's just a var- the variety or flavour of bastard that you're dealing with. And there you go. You've got an explicit flag in your YouTube. And you, sir, have uh, taken us through many of the beats, which hopefully we're going we're to uh, deal with in the next hour. But thank you for that uh, rather pithy summation. Leah, the public opinion on this is incredibly clear. Only 10% of voters think that the government has done a good job managing immigration. And that's according to a new poll by Ipsos. 79% think the government has done a bad job. They have to do something, don't they? And they have to be seen to be doing something. Don't we have some level of sympathy for Rishi Sunak? Nope, we do not. Because this is the thing, right? Leaders have agency and they have the opportunity to make choices. And uh, Rishi has made choices that, quite frankly, he's struggling to reap any benefits from. And I find it very difficult that where there is no strategy, not just not a clear strategy, there's just no strategy to address immigration in the ways that the public are demanding that Rishi stop the boats, it certainly amounts to a shortcoming on the leadership. Front. And so that's why we've ended up where we have with various criticisms of the deployment of the whip, of further commentary on no confidence votes, on a range of topics that go to undermine Rishi Sunak's ongoing ability to continue to lead this country. And that is unfortunate insofar as it is unnecessary. And I've said this on previous podcasts, this is a function of him not wanting to do U-turns. I'm not even sure that he he really does believe in the in the Rwanda policy, and and many of the press conferences have been incredibly uncomfortable because they feel like they're tone deaf. And that ostrich like burying one's head in the sand on an issue and going full steam ahead, even though it's totally illogical, is a function of where we are. It's a, a clear expression of 2023 Britain. Mm. 2023 Britain, we're all in the poop, Mick. Uh, let's kind of start by trying to set this stage a little. Uh, could you give us some kind of understanding of Rishi Sunak uh, and his leadership of the Conservative Party? Is he fundamentally isolated? Yeah, because he's got no, he's got no constituency within the party, right? The problem for Sunak is if you think about his roots through Parliament, right? He's he's a junior minister who then becomes chief secretary to the treasury and then is suddenly quite unexpectedly rocketed into position of chancellor after dominic cummings wants to sack sajid javid's special advisors and javid doesn't want to do it so they shit and javid sunak has not been in parliament very long he doesn't have a base he wasn't the choice of the members in the end he was the second choice because liz trust was such a disaster and i think me is probably right that he would have got rid of that would get rid of the rwanda policy if it wasn't for the fact that part of the deal for him to come in and be leader was that he was going to pursue the rwanda policy it has been insane that the tory party keeps talking about how it's going to stop the boat because it knows it can't without doing a lot of policies that it it wouldn't it, it will never sell the truth is um the way to stop the boats honestly is to go back to having safe and legal routes 
spend more money on having people in diplomatic staffs in other countries, which we used to do. We used to have good, highly trained people who looked at asylum cases. Now it's largely done by the capitas of this world, which is why it's a disaster. But Sunak can't say these things. The whole immigration debate is hugely dishonest because the truth is the majority, the, the big numbers that we have issues with is around like, how do we deal with student numbers? How do we deal with high value people coming in? The number, the number of illegal immigrants is a kind of canard, right? But also an honest discussion around immigration would say, we are a country that is not shagging enough. We don't have, we're not producing enough children and we fundamentally need immigration. And the, but right now our politics is based around saying, say councils are underfunded and then you say services aren't working well, it's because of the immigrants rather than say it's because the system is broken. Immigration, we also know that immigrants take less from the welfare state and contribute more to the state on average than people who are, who were born here. So the whole debate about immigration is a mess. I know you asked me about his leadership, but that's the important to bring it back to your question. Immigration is used as a, has been used as an excuse by politicians for years. Tory party is addicted to a juvenile debate around immigration. And Rishi Sunak is someone with no backbone who knows that he can't fight against his own party because he doesn't have any base in that party. Leah, Mick's pointed a picture, which is somewhat start by saying that the Tory party are having a juvenile debate around immigration. You're going to set that against, let's say, the backdrop of what's happening in Europe right now, or even in the United States, where everybody seems to be harding their stance on immigrants. With that in mind, surely it's hard for any right-leaning politician to come out and say, we need to be grown about, about, about immigration. And surely one of the things that Sunak tried to do, and I'm just, I'm playing devil's advocate here, I think, <laughs> before I go any further with this, that one of the things that Sunak tried to do was to meet those more right-wing MPs within the party this week and to try and pull them on board with this policy, a, a policy of which Denmark does something incredibly similar. They are, are there tightening their borders and also deporting people off to, I actually think it is Rwanda as well. So with that in mind, massive setup. I don't know where the question is. You can dis- discern one from it because you're smarter than me. Leah, the Prime Minister has tried his best to keep the two wings of the party together on an issue which people throughout the Western world are getting much more judgmental on immigration. There are a couple of oxymorons in there. The first one is, I don't think that the Tory party know how to disagree well. I don't think that they are able to have an adult conversation on immigration. If they did, the immigration minister wouldn't have resigned. I also think that it, there is a fatalism to knowing that they cannot resolve the issue with any of their proposed policies. There, there is also the issue, of course, that they are acting without a manifesto. And there is also, of course, the general issue of there are more than two factions in the party. And therefore, it's not as straightforward as corralling the middle ground or trying to appease X or Y, because actually the, the, the range of stakeholders is much broader. I think it's uh, I, I think Rishi has been set up to fail and I think he's been set up to fail since he was given the poison chalice post-trust. I think part of the challenge of this particular situation is that it is a function of I need to live to survive another day as opposed to this is a strategy that we can deploy over the next six months or nine months or in fact to the far side of the general election 
I think when you're making decisions on key policies that the country is depending on you for, if you don't have that long-term horizon and the ability, A, to deliver what you say that you're going to deliver, and B, to do that in a way that shows any kind of accountability or transparency in the process, you're going to lose capital, social capital, political capital. And I don't think that he had very much to start with. It's unfortunate that the whip had to be exercised over this particular decision. But I think the, the question really on everybody's minds is where to from here, because surely we can't go any lower. Mick, you've talked about the, 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 the five families. Lee has talked about the poison challenge, which, which is the Conservative Party. Uh, just take us through the various competing factions in the Conservative Party that any leader has to try and knit together to get anything done. You see, this used to be relatively e- easy, right? You used to have, like, in the Thatcher's day, right, you had people who should call the wets, right? So it's just semi to a liberal Tories, and then you have more hardliners who are on more in her direction, right? Starts breaking up more on the major, famously the group he called the Bastards. Obviously, for a long time, the problem in the Tory party was was a schism between the pro-Europeans and the Eurosceptics, or the anti-Europeans, as I've always preferred to call them. Cameron thought he fits that, would fix that by having the Brexit referendum. But really what's happened from there is you've ended up having a much further fracturing. And off the top of my head, I can name some of them, but I miss, I'll miss. i definitely miss some. You've got the Common Sense Group. You've got the Northern Research Group. You've got the U- European Research Group. You've got the New Conservatives. I think there's probably one, there's, I think there's one other. There's a few others. Uh, and because of this, what basically what's happening is it's sort of an insane fractal version of what happened in the, in the Labour Party in, say, the 80s when you have a militant operating party within a party. What's been allowed to happen in the Tory party now is you've all got, you've got these pressure groups that are allowed to have their own spokespeople go on do the media rounds and you have here. So and Mark Francois was being treated seriously this week. Was the chair of the European Research Group, a ludicrous man. If you've ever seen Mike from Space pretends that he's in the TA, that's like what Marc Francois is, except without any sort of nice humanity to him. But these people take it seriously, but it makes it very difficult for a leader. A, le- a leader who had any credibility or control within his own party would get all these people in and go, you've got to stop having these own little self-branded things. We can't run a party like this. We're all conservative. You have the right and the left wing of a party, but it's no wings now. It's, it is fractal. It's not shards of party. Should the Tory, really, realistically, the Tory party is not one party, right? You've got a sort of business-focused, low-tax type party, and then you've also got this kind of nativist, nace, like Britain's first-esque party in there as well. And they're just, I don't know how long that holds together. Probably doesn't hold together if they take an absolute shellacking at the next election, which they will. Leah, there's something remarkably similar happening the other side of the Atlantic. The Republican Party seems to be somewhat ungovernable in Congress. What are the two things which are similar, which have led to this fracturing of these two right of centre parties? Ego and money. Raoul. The money thing, I completely and utterly understand when it comes to American politics, that there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people in Congress, Senate less, but a lot of people in Congress who are all about the soundbite and being on One America or Fox News. And 
as long as you can get in front of that camera, you're going to generate a lot of money to help you campaign. And that election cycle is so short if you're in Congress. It's less than two years. Two years till you have to run again. So immediately, as soon as you get into office, you are running again. And you want to be, you want the cameras rolling on you. I understand that. But in the UK, we don't have so much money in our politics. We're not so driven by campaign uh, funds, etc. We are a little, but not. So there is something else here, isn't there? Surely. Yes. But I think just because the personal interests manifest themselves in a different way, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or or it doesn't um, exacerbate the disconnect between representatives and the public that they serve. And and so it's in that context that I say money, because ultimately, if you have a system that doesn't prioritize accountability and transparency, that, that creates an inherent cronyism, that ensures that there's a system whereby any current conservative MP can land on their feet and find great roles in the private sector when they resign as MPs because they don't want to face um, defeat at the general election, that means that their motivations right now, while they remain elected officials, are not on the job at hand. And and so there is a, a sense in which it, it, it still matters, it manifests itself differently, but certainly it exacerbates that need for political expediency in a way that, yes, is individualized, of course, but it's still there. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Supreme Court were clear that they were making a judgment about Rwanda at a specific moment 18 months ago and that the problems could be remedied. Today, we are confirming that they have been and that unequivocally, Rwanda is a safe country. And today's bill also ends the merry-go-round of legal challenges that have blocked our policy for far too long. So the bill does include what are known as notwithstanding clauses. These mean that our domestic courts will no longer be able to use any domestic or international law, including the Human Rights Act, to stop us removing illegal migrants. Let me just go through the ways that individual illegal migrants try and stay. Claiming asylum. That's now blocked. Abuse of our modern slavery rules. Blocked. 
The idea that Rwanda isn't safe, blocked. The risk of being sent to some other country, blocked. And spurious human rights claims, you'd better believe that we've blocked those too because we're completely disapplying all the relevant sections of the Human Rights Act. And not only have we blocked all of these ways that illegal migrants will try and stay, we've also blocked their ability to try and stay by bringing a judicial review on any of those grounds. That means that this bill blocks every single reason that has ever been used to prevent flights to Rwanda from taking off. We, we talked about the fact that only 10% of Brits actually think the government's done a good job with, with immigration. Brits feel that something should be done. Europeans feel that something should be done with immigration. The Americans think that something should be done. Is is something should be done at the border? I cut with that in mind. Shouldn't we have at least some modicum of, of understanding for the fact that you know what the Tories happen to be in power right now, but I don't know how better a Labour administration would be doing. Immigration fundamentally is a hot potato, isn't it? There's a few things here. One, Labour won't be any better because they 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 promise to be as half but more efficient is the promise they're making. It's a centre-right offering from Labour when it comes to immigration. But I come back to what I said earlier. The debate about immigration is, is dishonest. It's used by politicians to distract from other more complex aspects of problems with the system, such as Right now, we have many councils going bankrupt, literally ceasing to be able to do anything but their core function. That is a huge domino effect. Massive councils going bankrupt. And it's because they've been hollowed out by years of conservative austerity and also years of messing about under the Labour Party as well. And immigration is a really it's emotive. And this won't go down well with a lot of people when I say this, but frankly... A lot of the public, and when I go out and do reporting and I talk to people, a lot of the public uh, have a very vibes-based approach to it, to immigration. They don't actually know very much about it. And the failure is to do... It, it, the media story around immigration is deceptive and very poorly reported. The other thing that happens is, look at post... Just after the Brexit referendum, immigration dropped off the agenda, Right. If immigration gets high in people's concerns, generally, the general population's concerns, when the media talks a lot about immigration and when politicians talk a lot about immigration. But when they don't, most people, immigration slips down the list of priorities. So immigration can be ratcheted up by by political parties. The other problem is, like I said, we do not have a, an honest conversation about immigration, what immigration is. The other thing, of course, is that the system is set up to cause tension by parties who want to exploit it for their own reasons. For instance, a lot of immigra- immigration is forced into small areas rather than dispersed across the country, right? So then that causes issues, but that's deliberately done again. It's the same thing with the use of hotels. That might might sound conspiratorial, but it is not really meant like that. It's just that the system has been allowed to fail, and now we're told, oh, we've got to stop the boats, right? But it used to be we've got to stop the people getting on the lorries, right? We stopped doing that with the lorries. Or it used to be we've got to stop people hanging off the bottom of planes. But it all comes down to if you have safe and legal routes, the illegal stuff goes away. 
that's how you stop the boat. Everybody knows that, but we've got this just false crisis story about how it's about the boats. Also, what is disgusting, and it's worth talking about this week, is this constant talk about stop the boat is a way, as a phrase, of uh, avoiding us talking about people. It just becomes, that phrase takes the people out of the equation. And of course, this week, as we're recording, earlier this week, someone detained on the Bibby Stockholm took his own life. And that story was not as big a story in the press as it should have been. And we should be talking about our morality as a country, not just, can we get the numbers down? Can we do this? Can we do that? It it was a time, post in the post-war period, that the UK was hugely involved in the formation of international law around refugees. We did some positive things. And now we're a pretty disgusting country in the way we act about this stuff with our politicians because we are not doing our bit and also acting in a really deeply inhumane way. Liam, Mick's right, isn't he? We're acting in a deeply inhumane way. We are a country that has a, a relatively proud history of immigration. I'm testament to that. You are as well. Mick, aren't your, some of your ancestors Irish? Yes. There you go. Well, all of them. Irish immigration is a very... But all of us can claim to be the recipients of, let's say, an immigration policy which at one point was a little bit more benign than it appears to be now. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. But this does seem to underline, Leah, that kind of our lack of empathy, not just for economic migrants which are the lifeblood of literally any advanced economy. You need those people, as Mick says, who are going to come in and, dare I say, work for less than what the the general public is, take less out, do the crappy jobs which we say we don't want to do, literally wiping the backsides of the frail and, and the elderly, quite literally doing those types of jobs. But we seem to have not only a lack of empathy for those people, but also for other vulnerable groups why is it that in 2023 if you are homeless you can have the home secretary berating you as opposed to saying for shame to the country that so many people are homeless record numbers of home homeless people and we are so down on people who are fleeing economic or political disadvantage and want a better life here what does this say about us i know i've been going for the uh, one-liners or one words this evening but it's about fear and uh, uh, I think there's a sense in which, in the public consciousness, fear is manifesting itself in a way that goes even further beyond the ways in which it's already entrenched in our society. Why are we afraid of having a real conversation about humanity and about people? Because we would have to accept that, but for the grace of God, there go I. And that is a very inconvenient truth. It is a very inconvenient truth to look into your heritage and be able to identify with the realities that were faced by your um ancestors and the decisions that they made and the sacrifices that they chose to get you to be able to have the educational advances that you have had and the positions that you hold as a cabinet minister. And that idea that in order to thrive and be successful, I have to be different than that means that I will not identify with that at any cost. It is a stain that I cannot be counted alongside. And so it's about fear. And it's about not allowing the space to see ourselves in vulnerable people, in vulnerable situations, and to not presume that if we were in that situation, we would 
not be in need of the treatment that this conversation is suggesting we should be holding out to all people who are vulnerable, who are in need, who have made difficult journeys or who have come from unthinkable circumstances. And that lack of empathy is born from a perspective of fear and distrust and an unwillingness to see things as they really are, because it's too painful. It's too unreal. There's no, um, that's why this whole out of touch narrative has come through so clearly. And for a long time, I held that at bay, but I, I really think that there's something in it and it's disappointing and it's unacceptable. And I really do think that Britain needs to take a long look in the mirror and it needs to examine its morality and say, is this what we want to be associated with going forwards? And part of the problem is that no one at the moment is willing to say no. Mick, one of the things which has come out this week uh, when people have talked about Sunak is his leadership style. And he's been <laughs> called... Uh, and he's denied that he's irritable whilst under pressure. Is he tetchy? Is he resolute under fire? Look, you just have to watch his appearance at Prime Minister's Questions this week. And he stumbled into every possible trap from Sunak, from Starmer, who I don't believe is particularly... The funny thing is people said, oh, Starmer was great this week. No, it, it was like me playing tennis against a five-year-old. I'm going to get a lot of aces. Sunak's uh, attitude this week was appalling. At, at the end, Starmer threw him a, would you like to wish everyone a Merry Christmas? Join me in wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. And Sunak responded by just snarling, party political, point-scoring grimness. And it was like, it, it was obvious that she's a man who, you know, public school educated, was in finance, isn't used to being questioned. And again, it comes back to he's not been a politician for very long and he's not good at politics. Now, the truth is, Starmer hasn't been a politician for very long and he's also not good at politics. It's just that the wind is in his favour at the moment. But we do have an issue of people who just, they've not earned their spurs. They've not done the grunt work. There's that old phrase, risen without a trace. And that's what Sunak's done. He's, he has not, spent the time to be in a position to be prime minister and when he was chancellor for a majority of that time was within the was in the height of covid and the pandemic and things were very different and i think he falsely believed wow i'm very popular but you can be very popular when you're spending other people's money on on handouts which we now people start you now look at the polling on how well he did he do in the pandemic and people say not well because they've got a little bit of distance on it now and look at it they actually know he wasn't good at all the man doesn't have a leadership style because he's not a leader he comes off as a kind of peevish prefect yeah uh, not good i like that great bit of alliteration peevish prefect something which was said to me by Mr. Hall in fifth year seniors. I was a peevish prefect as well. Leah, this whole thing is a massive debacle, isn't it? There was the Rwanda Bill Mark One from Braverman, the Supreme Court knocks it down, says, oh no. We have there aren't too many specifics. There's a lack of a timetable for the flights to Rwanda. The government is scared to say exactly how much this is going to cost. This is just a real symbol of the fact that this government is scrambling around to at least attempt that it's doing something, isn't it? Been a very effective distraction from the COVID inquiry, though, hasn't it? And yes, you're exactly right. 
they are scrambling around and they are clutching at straws and and we've discussed this before on this podcast as well we do not need to be in the territory of contravening international law not just one multiple frequently because that's what the far right want it is totally illogical forget leadership for a second just logic there is none and it has been fascinating in considering the ways in which this has been framed by the government legal service and the caveats that have been associated with the meat on the bones of the Rwanda proposals and how the emergency legislation came about. I'm slightly confounded by the entire thing, particularly with respect to the additional funding that's gone to Rwanda and the inability to call that back and the lack of explanation as to what that's going towards and, and why that's been justifiable. But yes, I maintain that I agree with you, clutching at straws. And one of the amazing things, Mick, is that Rwanda has basically said, oh, hold, hold on a minute, we don't want to be breaking in international law. So the, 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 the unsafe country that these people are going to be sent to, that, they're, that even they're potentially taking half a step back and saying, we don't want to do anything which the international community says is illegal. Yeah, because Rwanda is, it needs that support from them in lots of ways. It is hilarious, really, grimly, grotesquely, appallingly hilarious to think that Sunak's government has been outflanked morally by Paul Kagame's government, a government that has shot and killed refugees, a government that is an authoritarian government. Yeah, we need to think about the morality of this as well. Like the uh, Rwandan ambassador on the radio the other day was asked, oh, why is it that Paul Kagame got 98.8% of the vote at the last election? She said, oh, it just shows how robust our democracy is and how happy people are with President Gagami. It's just, these are the people we're dealing with. Remember, of course, the British state happily deals with Saudi Arabia on the, all, all the time. The British state is massively happy to deal with the Emirates in all kinds of ways. These countries that are, are grotesque in so many ways. We, it's, I, like, I think about us morally when we're talking about morality and and immigration, I think, yeah, we're in no position because we will we will do deals with any blood-soaked tyrant if it suits us. So it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. It still disappoints me for some reason. Like I have some flicker in my heart that we can be better, but it's just the way we are. The Tories are in some level of a narcissistic death spiral. Leah, where does this end? Obliteration? Is that an option? Look. I don't think we think it can get worse, but I guarantee you it can get much worse. And I'd be interested to see what happens when the string of resignations starts. Mick, same question to you. I know you mentioned this at the start, that traditionally there's always been two wings of the Conservative Party, the One Nation Tories or the Wets, as Margaret Thatcher called it, and then the more free market business orientated let's say touching on libertarian xenophobic wing of the party the headbangers the headbangers the bastards but they need to split into two though fundamentally this is an ungovernable coalition all broad parties all parties are broad coalitions but at the at the flanks of both of this party there, there are people that just ideologically are not aligned. It needs to split into two. What says you? No, but this doesn't, ha- this doesn't happen, though, uh, it, because we have a first-past-the-post system, and y- you need to glom together these large these large 
internal coalitions for parties in order to have the scale to to dominate in first past the boats, right? And that they've for a long time we have had this cycle of the Tories are in for a big chunk of time. They get to a point where they can no longer hold themselves together. They fall out. That then we have Labour in, and then it cycles round again. And the difficulty to see any of that changing under the current system is they will not get back in again if they broke into smaller parties. Because you can get millions of votes as a small party. Look at the Greens. Look at in a proportional system, the Brexit party and and UKIP before them would have had a coterie of MPs from the number of votes, but they didn't because we're a first-past-the-post system. That's why the Tories can't break up. If they don't get into power again, that's it, it may happen, but it, it would be tactically very full. I'd be glad, screw them, and hopefully Labour do the same. But that's not... That doesn't work in the system as it stands. Mixed probably being quite quite wise there there's me already starting to sing and dance and skip merrily on the carcass of the conservative party but yeah we, we have this centrifugal force which forces broad coalitions to have some level of, of cohesiveness don't we because of the first past post system is rishi sunak gonna get another challenge from a wing of the conservative party before the next election alan has a piece of strength Obviously, of course. And uh, Nigel Farage is back. It is an inevitability that where there are, there's so much distance between different factions of the parties and where there are potential opportunities for leadership based on how extreme one can go, it is more than inevitable that a further challenge will be received by Rishi Sunak in January. Mick, what what do you say on this? Uh, another challenge to a sitting Tory leader in January? Yeah, it could be. That's stupid and self-destructive, but it would it would be a very bad idea. Uh, it's gonna it'll slim them down to a, to a, a, an embarrassing romp at the election. Look, the, the, the public already had enough of that, right? The public had enough of that around Liz Truss time. It's ludicrous, but I can see them doing it because because they're a very low quality party, full of desperately thick men. Particularly, the men are so thick and so convinced of their intelligence. I can see them doing it, and they've got a lot. They've got some time. The other thing that's dangerous for a politician like Cenac now is when they go away from Parliament, it's very hard for the whips to keep track of what people are up to. That's when you start to have rebellions, Easter's, Christmases, because they go off and they have a little, they think to themselves a bit too much. You want to be able to keep an eye on them. Crumbs. Right, watch this space, folks. There you go. That's Rishi Sunak's week uh, dissected by my good friends Mick Wright and Leah Brown. Mick, you're up to many things since since we last spoke. You got the successful Substack and, and you're doing all manner of things. Why don't you reprise the listeners of what you're up to maybe give them some web addresses or some handles with and catch up with your stuff online sir yeah just just go to substack brokenbottleboy.substack.com or, or find me on threads or blue sky broken bottle boy in both those places and there's there'll be a book next year but the publisher hasn't announced it yet but there will be so look out for that and but yeah good to be back how are you finding threads but by the way 
buying engagement is better than on Twitter. I at the moment it's fine. It's I don't know. There's a few. There's, you've got to straddle the horses at the moment and be like on as many places as possible and see what survives. But Zuckerberg said this week that they're going to federate it so that you can connect the threads people on Mastodon and stuff. Who knows? Maybe that'll make social media work again. But I, I remain dubious. Leah, what about you? Where should people catch up with you and your consulting works? Oh, you can find me, Leah Brown FRSA, on LinkedIn and Broadwood Says Consulting Limited on LinkedIn. And the longest day podcast is best found on Instagram or uh, under We Are BCLTD on X slash Twitter. Um, it's been a busy time. Uh, this week's podcast episode was with Sir Vince Cable, so that might be worth a listen. We've been working with Think Tank, and we've been doing an awful lot of reports, and we are actually going to be launching our own report into the state of media governance in the United Kingdom. So if anybody is interested in that, please do get in touch with us. And yes, we've been going steady on the mediation front, so talking a lot about helping people disagree well and engage in difficult conversations. So if you're interested in that, again, do get in touch. You've been having any swanky dinners with, with anybody important this week? Yes. Virtual Revenge. Okay. All right. You can't tell us. Maybe it's one of these blood-sucking tyrants that Mick was talking about beforehand. You're having some clandestine meetings with them. That may or may not be true. I could not possibly agree or deny. Gotcha. Well, folks, that's been the end of a slightly different Mid-Atlantic. We only had two talking heads, but I think they did an admirable job. Giving you, reprising you of a week in British politics, which has seen our Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, have a bloody nose from the right of his own party, from the right of the Conservative Party. We are in turbulent times as a country. Economically, we're somewhat in the mire. And you heard a podcast which we did with Emily Fry yesterday talking about the the, the reasons why the British economy isn't working and we had some level of, of solutions. But we know that this shower who are currently in power, are not equipped, basically, to to take through that plan. And one of the ironies is that we have an opposition that is not emboldened, even though we have this incredibly weak and enfeebled government. So where that leaves us, heaven only knows. We are politically in the mire, economically in the mire, but what we do need is some level of leadership, and also a leadership that can actually point the British people in the real direction of what the problems are. It's not immigrants, it's not migrants, it's the fact that we have a massive level of wealth inequality. And one of the things that Mick did say, which I couldn't agree with more, is the fact that our cities are going bankrupt is for shame on the economic system which we've put in place, that councils are struggling to fulfil the most basic of their functions. That's not to do with immigration. That's to do with a top-down system which is not working. That's to do with a country which is not generating enough income to have essential services. On that note, you can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com. But I'll tell you another thing you can do. Get over onto Apple Podcasts or onto Spotify and write a review. That is the best and the easiest way to give a little bit of wind in the south for the Mid-Atlantic Posse 
because I, I tell you what, Mick wants to come back, right? But he says we needed high quality donuts for him to come onto the podcast today. If we get three more reviews in the next week, I'm going to get Mickey's high quality donuts. And Leah, you know what? I can't keep up with her. Her Learjet is quite simply <laughs> one of the most expensive things that which we have to put on the budget for this podcast. By the skin of our teeth, we only had her today. She's had some fancy uh, Diageo do, and she managed to just nip out and do this podcast. If you want to say thank you to me, thank you to the team, to review, hope you'll give us five stars if you think we deserve it. Don't forget, left us in the politics is right thinking politics. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.